thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, whole food life that totally rocks. You're listening to Shiny Healthy You, the straight-talking natural health show for busy women with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Hello and welcome to part two of the recap of my volunteer trip to Greece. For those of you who are new to this podcast and hello, welcome, I recently crowdfunded a campaign to go to Greece and help out in the refugee camps there. In last week's podcast, which was episode 42, you'll hear stories of my first week over there. I was assigned to a camp on the mainland just north of Athens called Ritzona, and in that episode you'll hear my observations of what's working over there, what isn't, and what we did to help. I'm also pleased to announce that since that episode went to air last week, I was contacted by the Lighthouse Relief Team in Ritzona and they asked me if I'd be willing to be of assistance via email with menu planning and nutritional analysis of the food offered to the refugees. Naturally, I've said yes and it's really exciting to know that although I'm back in Australia now, I can still keep using my skills to help out from afar. Yay! Okay, on to today's episode. After spending a few days in Ritsona, another naturopath, Sharon Farrell, and myself headed back to Athens and flew out on a tiny little plane to an island called Chios. Chios is one of the most eastern of all the Greek islands, and it's placed very close to Turkey. In the show notes, I'll pop in a screenshot of a map so you can see what I'm talking about, because it's like pretty crazy. It's so close to Turkey. I think the distance to Chios... Uh, from Turkey is like maybe five kilometers. From the mainland where I was staying, you could actually see Chesme, which is a town in Turkey, as clear as day. So along with a couple of other nearby islands like Lesvos and Samos, that proximity to Turkey puts Chios on the front line for boat arrivals. First of all, I want to give you a bit of an overview about what's going on. It's actually a really complicated political situation, as I'm sure you would imagine. And although I asked a lot of questions while I was over there, it's still hard to really get a handle on what's happening. And I probably won't do it justice. Plus, the situation is ever-changing, but here goes anyway. The refugees make their way from war-torn Syria to Turkey, where it's not exactly legal to be a refugee. They hide out in the forests there while they wait for their turn to board a boat. They pay people, um, the people smugglers, a huge sum of money, rumoured to be equivalent to about 10000 Australian dollars, but that can vary, and that gets them a one-way ticket, hopefully to freedom. Once the refugees set foot on EU soil, they can claim asylum, which is why they're trying to get to Greece, as it's the closest EU country to where they've come from. By the way, it's worth mentioning that not all the refugees I met were from Syria. That's just the most common country where they're from. But we also had a few Afghanis, Iraqis, and a scattering of people fleeing other countries as well. Now, if you're wondering what the people smugglers are like, well, it sounds like they're pretty unscrupulous. The most telling story I heard to really explain this was the one about the life jackets. This one blew me away. So... If the refugees are cashed up, they'll purchase life jackets for the trip across in the water. But here's the most evil thing I heard. I think this is actually the most evil thing I heard the whole time I was away. 
There was a racket operating with the people smugglers in Turkey where cheap counterfeit life jackets were being made and sold to the refugees. And by counterfeit, I mean that they were the wrong type of foam in the life jackets. So the foam was a cheap substitute, so it's not real life jacket foam, and it wasn't buoyant at all. So in fact, the cheap stuff that was in these jackets soaked up the water and made people sink faster. And given that many of these people are from landlocked countries and they can't swim, plus some of these fake life jackets were being fitted to children, well, that's a special kind of evil indeed. So that's just a little bit about the people smugglers. Refugees are really big business to some not very ethical people, shall we say. And when you leave crooks in charge of ensuring safe passage across, it's not safe anymore. I heard stories of boats being overcrowded and children being accidentally crushed and killed on the trip across. It was really horrifying. I also heard stories of families being split up into different boats and then not all the boats made it across, separating parents from their children, separating siblings, separating couples. It was heartbreaking. And then there was the little matter of border security. So this is actually quite entertaining. If, if it wasn't so sad, it would be even more entertaining. But here's how it works. So there's three coast guards in the water between Turkey and Greece in that little 5K stretch of water. Each one of those coast guards is on the lookout for refugee boats. First of all, you have the Turkish Coast Guard patrolling Turkish waters. If they catch the refugees, the boats are pushed back to Turkish land. Next up, you have Frontex, which is the name of the EU Coast Guard. So they're also patrolling to keep the refugees out. They've got a very nice looking, super fast, super swish looking boat. They're also on the lookout for the refugees, obviously, and they will also push the boats back into Turkish waters. Finally, you have the Greek Coast Guard. Now, they're meant to pick up the boats in Greek waters when they arrive over that that borderline there and escort the boats safely into port. Except word on the street is that that didn't always happen and sometimes they had allegedly accidentally pushed the boats back into Turkish waters too. Hmm. So... It's like a giant game of Frogger. If you're from the 1980s, you'll understand what I mean. And as the refugees are packed like up to 45 or 50 people at a time into these rubber ducky style boats, not dissimilar to what I've seen the Byron Bay lifesavers use, it's completely bananas, completely nuts. So anyway, if they manage to avoid all of those coast guards and they make it through, They will hopefully then land on Greek soil on one of the islands. That's where Surst comes in. Now, Surst is actually, uh, it's a little bit different to how it sounds. It's actually C-E-S-R-T, but everyone there was calling it Surst. And that stands for Kios Eastern Shore Response Team. It's a volunteer group run by a remarkable woman by the name of Tula. When I asked how and why she became so involved in this cause, she simply pointed out her living room window to the tiny beach below and she said, see that spot? That's where they landed. So have you seen any of the footage ever on Facebook or anything or on the internet of the boats landing in the middle of the night and the local Greek women rushing to help with blankets, food and drinks? That was Tula. This woman is a dead set legend and she never stops. I don't even know if she sleeps, seriously. But she didn't just stop at helping boat arrivals. No, no, no. 
Tula saw many other opportunities to make life in the camps for these people a better place. You see, after arriving on the shore, the refugees are then sent to camps on Kios where they wait to be processed and moved on. To make their quality of life better, Tula and Surst offer things like a children's centre, a daily tea service, clothing distribution, an English centre and a women's centre. See why I suspect why Tula doesn't sleep? <laughs> Talk about a busy and inspiring group of women and, and people in general. There, was, there were plenty of volunteers there and a lot of them were quite long-term. So daily tasks by volunteers were incredibly varied and would include things like the following. A morning meeting. This was every day. Every day we would get together in the morning at the same time as a team Tasks would be allocated, people would put their hands up for different jobs, and volunteers would have an opportunity to share any news, they would celebrate their wins, they'd voice their concerns, and we'd also say goodbye to anyone who was leaving the team that time. Like Our team was about 30 to 40 people strong at any given time, so there's lots of volunteers coming and going. So then there's the warehouse. Now, this is the heart of the whole operation. Without the warehouse, nothing else would work. So clothing donations come in from local Greek groups, but not all the clothing is appropriate, shall we say. So we saw some doozies, including evening gowns, sequined numbers. I mean, what the? I don't think refugees need those. So the clothing is sorted into usable and unusable. The unusable stuff would go back out to the Greek community. Then we would divvy up the usable stuff into things like male, female, kids, and then into sizes. And then we would separate things like the pants, the shirts, the jumpers, the coats, the underwear, everything. This warehouse is quite big and it's a huge job and it had to be chipped away at every day. Otherwise, clothing distribution wouldn't work. And clothing distribution is a really huge part of this organization. So I spent a fair few mornings helping out in the warehouse um, and it was actually a lot of fun. It was a real lot of fun. I'm telling you that Tula's team, the people there have just got the best sense of humor. We used to play music, we'd have a bit of a dance party while we were sorting out the clothing. It was really, really good vibe there. So in terms of daily tasks, next up there's the children's center, but I'll go into that a little bit later. Then also there was distribution. Now distribution involved teams of volunteers going on outreach to the camp and speaking with the occupants there. So they'd actually like pop their heads into tents and have a chat. So they would find out what people needed and then they would go about distributing goods as best as they could. There was also shopping that needed to be done. So the volunteers would often go to local stores and buy clothing, uh, footwear, supplies, food uh, for the refugees, depending on their needs at the time. There was also a daily tea service at Suda. Uh, that's one of the camps. This was one of my favorite tasks, actually, where I got to speak to a lot of people. So we'll go into this one a little bit more next week because it is, you know, there's a, a bit of a story involved there. The English Centre and the Women's Centre also provided essential services to support refugees. Uh, and it would not only make their time in the camps a little better, it would also help to give the refugees skills to prepare, prepare them for life on the outside when their family moved on to a new country. So there were volunteers being sent to the English Centre and the Women's Centre every day as well. And we actually had a few teachers on our team um, who really loved working at the English Centre. They were doing some really amazing things there. Another daily task was the port shift. So, uh, and there were also volunteers on call for boat arrivals. So port shift and the boat arrival volunteers, also a very huge job. 
I'll also save this one for next week as well um, and we'll go over it then. But let's go back to the children's centre because honestly, apart from the acute care given during the boat arrivals, this children's centre, from what I could see, is one of the most important services that Surst offers. Now, life in the camps is really no place for a child from what I saw. It's bleak, there's no grass or trees, there's nowhere to play. I saw kids playing in the dirt just with stones and that was it. And there's definitely a tense vibe around the place. There's also no hot running water. I heard stories of kids going for a month or more without having a shower in the camp. And in the winter there, it's like less than 10 degrees on a lot of days. Plus there's the wind chill because the camp is like right next to the sea. So a cold shower is like completely out of the question. Skin infections like scabies were unfortunately really common. So Surst came up with a solution. They opened a children's centre, which is about a 10-minute walk from the camp, because don't forget that the occupants of these camps can actually come and go as they like, and parents are encouraged to bring their children to the children's centre. It's like a daycare centre. It's got heating, it's got rugs on the floor, it has an abundance of toys and art materials to keep little ones entertained, and the best part hot showers. Woohoo! So while mum was in the bathroom showering a child, volunteers would be in the common area babysitting the other kids. Then another volunteer would put together some clean clothes for the kids to change into. The freshly showered child would return in their fresh new clothes to the common area to hang out while mum would then go and shower the next one. Each child would also leave with a goodie bag full of food to eat. This was the best thing ever. The children's centre at the time of my visit were, they were providing about up to 25 hot showers every day. It was epic. The whole operation was headed up by a very passionate woman called Yana, who was super dedicated. She was really creative in her approach to solving problems, and she was also open to feedback on how to make the place even better. The first thing I noticed there was the goodie bags of food that they were giving out were kind of loaded with sugar. Here's what the kids were getting. Two pieces of fruit. Hey, nothing wrong with that. But they also got a couple of pieces of milk chocolate, a lollipop, a sweet biscuit, and a sugar-laden muesli bar. So after talking to Yanna, we decided to overhaul the goodie bags to include more nutritious options. She was concerned that the kids' teeth were suffering from the sugar as well and that they weren't getting enough protein but she didn't have a lot of nutrition knowledge. There hadn't been anyone there before who had much nutrition knowledge, so they were pretty happy to see some of us naturopaths turn up. So here's what we came up with. Two pieces of fruit, obviously we kept that in, a breadstick, a piece of cheese, and one small sugary treat, just one, either a lollipop or a small bit of chocolate, but not both. And to top it off, we also put in a protein-rich homemade bliss ball. I purchased a food processor from a local electrical store. I got a Kenwood one so that I know that it will last long after I'm gone. Well, hopefully. (laughs) Then I created a recipe using easy to source ingredients that would also be familiar to the mums and the kids because um, a lot of the refugees are often wary of food they've never seen before. So I wanted to keep this looking really familiar for them. 
The balls ended up containing almonds, sesame seeds, tahini, and a small amount of dates and honey to make them stick together. So it was loaded with like protein and calcium and magnesium and, you know, all those things that kids need. We wrote out the recipe for the other volunteers to follow after we leave. And we even filmed a video to show them how it was made. Now, you may be asking the question, why did I leave one sugary treat in the goodie bag? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Honestly, these kids don't have a lot else to look forward to. And a small bit of chocolate was a damn sight better than chocolate plus lollies plus biscuit plus the muesli bar. So I thought some small changes were better than trying to be too heavy handed. We were also aiming for improvement, not perfection. I believe that's the best way to make changes that stick. Now, while I was at the children's center, I also saw a few things that needed fixing because the building's quite old. You know, there's always stuff going on. They were heating the place with these little gas space heaters and there was no air conditioning. Yana told me that they urgently needed to get aircon installed before summer arrived as the rooms are small and they're stuffy and they heat up really quickly. I also spotted a couple of holes in the floor where the boards were rotten, which needed to be patched up before someone puts their hand or their foot through them. Yana also badly needed some more storage options for supplies like shampoos, conditioners, bath products, food, etc. That all takes money, right? Luckily, (laughs) I still had a fair few dollars left over from my crowdfunding campaigns. Yay for crowdfunding. It totally rocks. You guys are awesome. So thank you to everyone who donated. And if, if you're listening and you donated, your money's gone to such a good place. Although I'd already spent a fair bit uh, on things like healthy food and herbal medicines for both Ritzona and Kios, I still had heaps left over and I'd been wondering how to spend it. I spoke to Yana and asked her what her most urgent need was. She has since organized some tradies to come and quote on the air conditioning. She's going to get back to me as soon as possible with details of how much it will cost. Before I left, I also purchased enough ingredients to make bliss balls for the next month. So uh, hopefully we'll keep that momentum going as well now that I'm gone. So I'll keep you posted on where the proceeds of the crowdfunding are going. It's really exciting, actually. I'm hoping that we can cover both the air conditioning plus the repairs to the floor. Who knows if we'll even have a little bit left over for something else, but we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully I'll have some news for you on that next week. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, hit subscribe because part three and the final installment of my adventures in Greece will be coming to you next week. I can't wait to tell you about the people I met at tea service each day and some of the stories that they had to tell. In the meantime, head over to julesgalloway.com and you'll see a couple of blog posts with loads of photos of my trip, along with some super cool freebies on the website just for you, like my brand new healthy dessert ebook and a little guide to healing adrenal fatigue. So don't forget to visit my website at julesgalloway.com and grab those now. A reminder to you as well, I'm back in clinic again. Uh, I'm taking both in-person and Skype appointments. So head to my website also if you're keen to book in and see me for some extra help. I hope to see you again next week. In the meantime, stay shiny and bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. 
Foster Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.